This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And folks, as you know, whenever the guest smiles during that intro, you know it's going to be a good one, and this time was no exception. So today, Good Faith Fam, we have on a guest who is both one of the most impressive people you'll ever meet and one of the genuinely nicest people that I know. Uh, He's, first of all, a physician who's the director of the Office of Emergency Care Research for the National Institutes of Health, and he's also a historian of science on top of that, who's authored books on the history of the search to cure the flu, uh, the Jewish reaction to Copernican thought, which is one of my favorite books, as well as, most recently, the incredible new book, literally just out, called The 11th Plague, Jews and Pandemics from the Bible to COVID-19. And we're going to talk about theology, history of science, and so much more. But first, uh, let's uh, let's set this thing up. Okay, so we've been talking in the last few episodes about the book of Exodus. And of course, among the most famous scenes or series of scenes in the entire book is the 10 plagues that afflict the Egyptians as punishment for their treatment of the Israelites. And it's one of the most cinematic parts of one of the most cinematic books in the history of arts and literature. Just unbelievable stuff. And the reason I raise this is because I want to call your attention to a weird moment in the biblical text when it talks about the plagues, and specifically the plague of darkness. So according to the Bible, when God instructs Moses about bringing this plague, he says, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there could be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. And that last phrase, a darkness that can be felt, vayamesh choshech, is odd. What kind of darkness can be felt? Right? What kind of darkness is so thick, in fact, that as the Bible tells us two verses later, it actually prevented people caught in it from moving. One of the truly wildest answers can be found in an ancient collection of Jewish biblical interpretation from like nearly 2,000 years ago. And what it notices is that the darkness the Bible seems to be describing here is clearly not natural. It's not found in nature. And so it must have been supernatural. It must have come from somewhere else. Where else? Well, it gives two answers. And the first is kind of standard. This darkness is in Hebrew, choshech shel gehenum, the darkness of hell itself. So the plague of darkness was like a little taste of the punishment that sinners experience in the world to come. This is like the kind of sort of the answer you'd expect. That's not the wild one. It's the second answer that gets really wild. According to the second answer, the darkness that the Egyptians experienced was, wait for it, choshech shelmala, which means the darkness of the heavens, the divine darkness in which God himself dwells, right? Like think of Psalm 18, verse 12, God dwells in secret darkness, choshech sitro. That secret darkness, that's the darkness that God placed upon Egypt. What? Isn't that bizarre? I mean, like, wouldn't that be a reward to experience something godly, something divine like that? Why would experiencing that heavenly darkness be considered a plague, right? Akin to drinking blood or being afflicted by frogs or crops being devastated by locusts. So my grandfather and teacher, Rabbi Norman Lamb of blessed memory, whom I've often mentioned on the pod, so you all know him already, he offered an incredibly a poignant explanation of this tradition. And this is the craziest part. It was just at the young age of 31 that he wrote the following lines. He wrote, darkness or solitude can become the curse of loneliness as it did when it plagued the Egyptians and separated every man from his brother, a loneliness that prevented one from feeling with the other, from sharing his grief and joy, his dreams and his fears. 
Darkness indeed can be a plague, but the same darkness can be a blessing. It can be worthy of the close presence of God himself, for solitude means privacy. It means that precious opportunity when a man escapes from the loud brawl of life and the constant claims of society, and in the intimate seclusion of his own heart and soul, he gets to know himself and realize that he is made in the image of God. I love that passage, the notion that darkness can be either a plague or a blessing, or maybe even both at once, that it can be hellish or divine, depending on what we make of it, how we respond to it. And it was with that insight in mind that I read an absolutely fascinating book that was just published called The Eleventh Plague, Jews and Pandemics from the Bible to COVID-19. It tells the story of how plagues, epidemics, and pandemics across history have been forces of devastation, and yet at the same time have also produced, in some cases directly, just astonishing creativity and progress, not just scientific, but intellectual, theological, and spiritual. And so to unpack all of this, I brought on the author himself, He's the director of the Office of Emergency Care Research for the National Institutes of Health and a superlative historian of science. He's my friend, the legend, Dr. Jeremy Brown. Jeremy, thank you so much for being here. Oh my word, what an introduction. Um, I hope you'll do my Hesper. Uh, that was terrific. <laughs> I am humbled by your kind words. And um, I, I hadn't heard that beautiful Torah from your, from your late grandfather. How true that is that sometimes things which are a plague to one person are a blessing to another. Um, to bring a, a, an example pretty close to home for us, uh, our listeners in America, the uh, smallpox that was brought over by the British pilgrims uh, and that devastated the Native American population in the 17th century was seen by the King of England as a divine a uh, retribution and a wonderful thing that the land had been cleared out so that the British pilgrims could could go and claim this land that we called America. So here you see a plague that, that devastated the native population was seen by those on the other side of it as a wonderful and miraculous thing. And surely that's true of us today as well, right? We have now plague decals that go on our fingernails and, and, and pl plague finger puppets. And um, we've sort of made something joyful almost out of, out of what was surely once a very, very terrible set of, of consequences. So the interesting thing to me is that you actually were, I mean, as you write in the book, you were working on this subject even before the COVID pandemic. And the truth is that we were actually already, before COVID, living in like the golden age of historical narratives rooted in the destructive powers of the natural world, right? Like even outside the question of Jews and pandemics, right? So let's think about the most, you know, the most famous question in academic and even popular history. How should we explain the fall of Rome, right? So every few decades, you have like a major talented historian who comes along and revolutionizes or attempts to revolutionize how we think about that. And sure enough, in, in 2018, the historian Kyle Harper, this is, I guess, in my field, published a major book that made big waves, and it was called The Fate of Rome. It was the first, you know, significant revisionist account of the fall of Rome in a minute, and its entire argument was about how, you know, devastating viruses, destructive pandemics, and other natural catastrophes, like, swept through the Roman Empire and eventually brought it to its knees. So my question is this. Is there just something in the water uh, a dark pun very much not intended, um, right? Like, why is the why is the history of science feel as a whole been so drawn to pandemics and disease even before COVID? And where does your book fit into this? Yeah, there's a terrific set of questions. 
look, we are at the end of the day animals who live in a natural setting. And though we can wall ourselves off from it, and though we today are certainly in Western societies, have really forgotten what infectious diseases can do to whole societies. People live this uh, daily. Um, you mentioned that I wrote a book on the, uh, the history of the fight against influenza that really focused on the 1918 pandemic and what we've done in the last hundred years. And one of the puzzling questions that historians think about is why was there not more written about it? Why was there not more uh, published about it in the newspapers? Uh, it's a topic for another time, but but the, the answer that I have for this is that infectious disease and death were, were, were anyway a natural part of life. And that if there were a few more deaths in your family or a, f a few fewer, that really didn't make much of a difference. It was, as I say in, in my book on pandemics, it, the infectious diseases were as natural as the weather. And just as sometimes we take note of the weather and sometimes we don't, so true with natural diseases. You have to remember, Ari, that until the late 18th century, about half of all children would not reach their 14th birthday. They died wow. from infectious diseases. Half of all children did not reach their 14th birthday. So what we have, as you mentioned, with the, with the, the histories of, you know, new histories of the fall of Rome, and, and if I may, uh, you know, bundle into that, this new book that I've written, it's a way of, of I think, shining a light on something that has always been there and that we have been very lucky to have forgotten in the last century or so. But it's just lurking around the corner as, as COVID has taught us. You know, one thing that 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 provokes in me, I, I've been thinking about this. I'm, I'm thinking of writing a, a Twitter thread on it. The classic question in the beginning of the book of Genesis is why the serpent, right? Of all the, the beasts that could have, or I forget beasts, right? Of all the characters that could have sought to get into a confrontation with Adam and Eve, why a serpent? Now, you know, the, the classic answer is that, well, the serpent's not really a serpent. The serpent is, is Satan, the serpent is the devil. And, you know, there may be some, some truth to that, but at the end of the day, if you're grappling with the text at a, at a simple level, you know, what if the serpent is just a snake, right? What if the serpent's just a serpent? Why a serpent? And I think... I'm sh there may be others who have who have gotten to this insight, but I think the answer is that if you look at the immediately preceding section of the text, right before the snake encounters Eve, that's the part where Adam chooses a mate. And the text tells us that he goes through all the animals and and can't find the mate to the point where God actually has to make a second human and specifically make a second human out of the first human, right? Because only humanity can understand and relate to itself at the highest possible level. And humanity can only partner with itself in creating a relationship with God. So there's this real sense, this real self-consciousness on the part of the earliest human that only other humans are sufficient partners for partnering with the divine. There's something that separates humanity from the rest of the animal kingdom in its relationship with God. And that's right when you get the serpent who comes along, who's the most clever, the most elevated of all of the beasts of the field, who comes along and says, oh, you think you're better than us? Like, you think that you're not just animals? That's all you are. I mean, you were created, on, look at the last chapter, you were created on the same day as us. You're just animals at the end of the day. And I think my theory is that the first three chapters of Genesis is really about that drama. Are humans mini-gods, or are they just slightly, you know, slightly elevated beasts, like the serpent? And the reason I mention that is because I, I love how you frame that. Like, at the end of the day, there is this, like what pandemics and what your book 
kind of brings to the fore is that on the one hand, we're just organic matter. And we're not that different from rats, from monkeys, from, you know, from cockroaches. Like we get diseases and we die and we're fragile. And that's just a part of the human story. And yet what your book also brings out, and, and this is kind of what I want to talk about in large part, is the way that we respond to being just organic matter is one of the most astonishing things about us. But how did that impact your the way that you even like organize the book right like you could just write a history of humans dying and it wouldn't be that interesting but what makes your book so fascinating are the crazy responses and the inspiring responses to disease and death that come out of this so how did that influence the way that you kind of even structured the book yeah it's it's really i they are crazy responses often but crazy in a very very good way right i, I meant inspiring right yeah yeah an inspiring way you know, I opened the book with the story of how pandemics in the in the late Middle Ages really gave us that kickstart. So, for example, let's just choose choose one person. Many of us are familiar with the works of the Ramar of Moshe Isilis, who is famous for his gloss on the Shulchan Aruch, which has really shaped Ashkenazi halachic practice to this day. But he's a famous person, but less well known is the fact that as a young man, the Ramar had fled from a plague in Krakow. We're talking 16th century Krakow. For those listeners who aren't Jewish, right? 16th century Krakow is one of the great signal figures in Jewish intellectual history, probably one of the two most influential figures in the development of Jewish law ever. Right. Thank you. Yes. And this person who, as you say, would become one of the most influential figures in, in the realm of Jewish law, he is in a plague. There were was, there was several pandemics that broke out in Krakow with, you know, fairly regularly. And the Ramah has to flee. He has to go into exile. He has to run away from the uh, from the epicenter of disease. And he's stuck there. And it's the minor festival of Purim coming up. And um, he writes that in order for me not to be sad, as I was sort of standing outside of the city, looking in and wondering what's going to happen next, uh, I decided to write and investigate and expound on the meaning of the Book of Esther, the Megillah. So here you have a man who was faced with two possibilities. A pandemic could end his creative journey, or it could spur him on to new creativity. And he chose the latter, fortunately for us. And his um, very first book, Mechir Yain, The Price of Wine, was published three years later in 1559. And not only did he let, not let the pandemic uh, derail his study, but he was actually spurred by a pandemic to reach these new intellectual heights. So that's just one example of many that I bring in the book where a pandemic has served to produce new areas of, of incredible Jewish intellectual creativity. So one thing I think your book also highlights is this kind of dark underbelly of Jewish history's collision with general history. And what I mean by that is when plagues get started, most people, you know, most humans have to fight against the plague. But when Jews encounter plagues, they have traditionally throughout history have had to fight a two-front battle, right? One front against the plague itself, but then also against the rest of society, which often blame them for the plague in the first place. I mean, erroneously. And I think most people, including a great many of our listeners, I would imagine, quite, quite understandably, just don't know anything about this history. So if you were a Jew during the many centuries before this one and plague came to your part of the world, what could you expect to happen? Well, we'd have to break it down by time period, perhaps by century. I mean, if you think about it, the first plagues that we encounter, the plagues in the in, in the book of Exodus in the Bible, 
They were caused by the Jews, right? <laughs> it was because of the Jews that, that we had frogs everywhere and we had vermin and we had hail. And, and it was because of the Jews and the Jews in that instance were, were very proud uh, of what had happened and saw it as a, obviously as a divine sign. But we totally poisoned the well that time. <laughs> yes. But I think what you're getting to is this other side of, of plagues, which is the anti-Jewish violence that has often accompanied them. Look, when I, um, when I wrote about this in the book, I introduced the chapter on the Black Death and anti-Jewish violence, which I introduced the chapter with the, with the truth that there are a lot of anti-Semitic canards that came out during the onset of COVID, when the virus seemed to be tearing through the Jewish communities at much higher rates than the rest of the population, there was a lie that was sweeping that the Jews were behind this. Now, obviously, it did not have the same staying power or the same uh, global spread as previous uh, lies about Jewish involvement with plagues, but it was there. And that really prompted me to go back and look at another time and another place, and that was the wave of bubonic plague which we called the Black Death in 1346. And the title of that chapter is The Jews Have Been Burned by Due Legal Process. The, the Black Death and this terrible anti-Jewish violence that was actually endorsed by the leadership of both the church and the nobles and uh, actually condemned the, death to, condemned the Jews to death by burning, but by due legal process. They saw this as what was justifiable and what was rightly coming to them. This story is one that we know, but we should also remember that it wasn't only the Jews who were blamed for deaths. Two decades before the outbreak of the Black Death, lepers were, were blamed for poisoning the water, although it was claimed that they did that at the behest of the Jews. Earlier, there had been women who had been suspected of poisonings, uh, but ultimately the Jews were really seen as the scapegoat, as the way that we could, uh, society could perhaps focus its anger on this vulnerable population. So if you are a Jew living in the 17th century, if you're a Jew living during the outbreak of, the, of various types of plagues, the bubonic plague just being one of them, one of the reactions that you document, there's there's killing, there's burning, there's, there's all sorts of violence, but there's also expulsion. And expulsion is, is quite important both because it, just reveals kind of a, a pretty nasty chapter in human history and its relationship with the Jewish people, but also because it introduces major changes into Jewish intellectual history. All of a sudden, you have a community with its own set of traditions and, and assumptions and intellectual history transplanted artificially from one place to another place. And one way to think about that is that, you know, it's these are just like another in a series of tragedies that characterize Jewish history. And we've talked about that kind of way of doing Jewish historical writing before in this podcast. It's called the lachrymose theory of Jewish history. Lachrymose meaning tear, being a kind of like a almost unnecessarily fancy word for tearful. But the tearful view, the lachrymose theory of Jewish history, which was a phrase coined by the great Jewish historian Salo Barone, Barone coined the phrase to describe a way of thinking about Jewish history as just like a series of sad events, right? Like you could just tell the history of the Jewish people as like one catastrophe after another. He was very much bothered by this way of telling the Jewish story because he thought it, it both denied agency to the Jewish people and it also was just inaccurate in terms of describing the the great accomplishments and some of the astounding intellectual achievements and spiritual and theological achievements of Jewish history. And this is a, a point that emerges quite strongly in your book, which is that a lot of the displacements that occur because of the plague 
end up having these sort of surprising and in some cases surprisingly positive effects. And, you know, people tell the story of these expulsions with kind of this long range view of history. So what are some things that jumped out at you as you were researching this book that kind of reframe how we might think about a people being literally expelled from their place of, of domicile? Uh, it's so interesting that you quote uh, Silo Baron because that's I end the book with, with the conclusions about asking whether the history of the Jewish encounter with plagues and pandemics is indeed a lachrymose history, just as the Jewish encounter with, you know, with outside societies might be, as you said, a lachrymose history. But I concluded that there is nothing lachrymose about the history of Jews and pandemics. Uh, it's really the story of how the Jewish people, as part of humanity itself, uh, really battled and overcame the nature. And, you know, Baron himself described the anti-Semitism against the Jews as, as the ordinary flow of Jewish life. And that's what I discovered with my research into plagues and pandemics, that this was, as I said, the, the, the part of the ebb and flow of life, but it spurned great creativity. It's also the case that we, as Jew, the Jewish people, were at the very forefront of a number of, of cutting-edge techniques that were used to, to fight pandemics and were um, very often test cases. It's, it's a little, little understood, I think, that the, one of the first anti-vaxxers was a Jewish anti-vaxxer who brought a court case in England, asking that he not have to take the smallpox vaccine. Uh, he was a Jewish anti-vaxxer by the name of Levy, who was actually prosecuted by another Jew for the government, also by the <laughs> name of Levy. Um, but so he, here's just an example of how we have been enmeshed in many ways in, in this ongoing story. And when it comes to vaccines, for example, the first, the first vaccine that we might want to consider, the smallpox vaccine or the smallpox inoculation, was really um, a test case for the Jewish people. And by and large, uh, the rabbinic leadership of the time was incredibly supportive of this new technology at a time, it might be said, when um, many other people were also supportive of it, but not everybody. And it's another example I bring in the book. I include a number of sort of lesser, lesser known Jewish characters themselves, very colorful, to show how the support for Jenner's vaccine, while not universal amongst rabbis, was, I would say, uh, there was an overwhelming support for it. I, I want to get into that, actually, because I, I want to get into that a little bit deeper. So I want to set the stage as follows. In the early 19th century, uh, Rabbi Israel Lipschitz of Danzig, then, which was then a part of the Kingdom of Prussia, published his monumental commentary on the Mishnah, which is the earliest work of rabbinic literature. And this commentary, which is standard even until this very day, is called the Teferet Israel. The Teferet Israel that became the moniker by which he's known to this day. And in this kind of little mini novella that he inserts into the commentary when he's when he's commentating on a tractate a vote of the Mishnah on a section of the Mishnah, a particularly important section of the Mishnah, he's commenting on this rabbinic dictum that 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 the righteous amongst the nations of the world can secure or secure their own place in the world to come equal to even the greatest Jewish sage. So you don't need to be Jewish to be saved, to use the contemporary parlance. You just need to be a righteous person. And then what he does, what uh, what the Tiferes Israel does, is he then lists examples of people who he, whom he thought were righteous amongst the nations and would have this exalted place in the salvation history uh, of humanity. And we've already talked about uh, on this podcast, we've already talked about the second person on his list, was a man by the name of Johannes Reuchlin. We did a whole episode on him. He, ev he eventually became the most famous person in all of Europe before Martin Luther came along. And he was well known specifically as like the first person to introduce 
European civilization to the study of ancient Hebrew, and then eventually for his efforts in defending the Jews of the Holy Roman Empire from total annihilation at the hands of some of the most notorious anti-Semites in history. So he was pretty spectacular. And so if he was only the second person on the Tiferes Israel's <laughs> list, you can imagine that the first person must have been pretty special. And in fact, the first person on the Tiferes Israel's list was a man by the name of Edward Jenner, uh, who was the inventor of the smallpox vaccine. So what did the Jews make of him? Like you've sketched it out a little bit already, but but what are some of the responses to the smallpox vaccine and how, do, how would you situate that in the context of larger societal reactions to Jenner's vaccine? Well, let's just step back a moment. Smallpox was this terrible virus that um, many of us, most of us have, n have not uh, thought about. And the majority of us have not ever seen an infection from smallpox because smallpox was eradicated from the world in the early 1980s, completely gone. It's now held in two or three high security laboratories in the world, you know, across the world. But that's it. There is no more smallpox in the world. Oh, man, that, that, that just sounded like the cold open to a pandemic movie. <laughs> right. What greater <laughs> testament is there to the power of vaccines and to completely eliminate a disease? And this disease, this smallpox disease, was a terrible, terrible disease. There are a few photos that you can find online of people in the, in the, in the 1970s suffering from this disease. It swept through communities. It killed children. Those who survived, it left them blind and crippled. And again, it was it was just simply a part of life that 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 was there. And what Jenna did was discover a safer way to administer a vaccine. Before then, the the way that disease had been fought for many decades, certainly in England and probably longer than that in China, was that you would get inoculated. That the physician would take a little bit of the smallpox pus from somebody who was suffering from this disease, scrape it and, and insert it under your, you know, in a little sort of a cut that was made in the arm. And we understand today that what that did was that produced an immune reaction and the person would now become immune to the full smallpox virus. Uh, the problem was with that uh, approach is that it was very hit and miss. You had to inject exactly the right amount and the, the pus that you had to collect had to be exactly the right concentration, as you were, as it were, it couldn't have too much virus in because then it would kill the person who was inoculated. It couldn't have too little because then it would uh, not do its job. This technique had actually been tried on Jenner himself as a young man. So we certainly understood what it was that, that inoculation could do. But Jenner took this to another level when he realized that the cowpox, which is a cousin of smallpox, if you like, and it causes a very mild disease that the cowpox could be used to inoculate people safely, they wouldn't develop smallpox and they would develop a, an immune response that would pr protect them against uh, smallpox itself. And so this is uh, where we got the word vaccine from, from vaccina, meaning a, a cow in Latin. And when he introduced this to the world in the late uh, 1790s, if you think about it, it was extremely counterintuitive. Why would injecting a, a disease from, a, from an animal cause a good outcome in people. Um, of course, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and, and he showed that it worked. But there was, there was both a, a scientific pushback uh, from some people and also a religious pushback. Some of the uh, leaders of the church, uh, certainly in England, believed that we shouldn't be messing around with diseases like this. If God wants to punish us with smallpox, then who are we to take the law into our own hands and, and develop something against it? But there was a need at the time for smallpox, if you like, to be considered, this new smallpox uh, vaccine to be considered as whether or not a, a Jewish person could or should indeed take it. 
And uh, that's where we come across the earliest responses to, to vaccines and the earliest works on inoculation. And um, as I point out in the book, the majority, I think, of, of Jewish leaders at the time saw this as nothing other than a ter- terrific blessing uh, and sign that God has injected his wisdom into, into flesh and blood, allowing us to develop the vaccine. And uh, from there on, it was really part and parcel of, of what, people, uh, what people did. And there was no, really no pushback against it. Uh, and as I said, eventually we destroyed and eliminated smallpox from the face of the earth. Quite an amazing thing. But uh, it took a long time. And during that time, there were many outbreaks of uh, smallpox uh, across the world, including, as I write in the book, including in Jerusalem. Uh, in 1900, a British physician described a terrible outbreak of smallpox in Jerusalem. And following Jenner's publication of his work in 1799, of course, there was anti-Semitic pushback in which, remarkably, there were claims that the Jews were behind the vaccine in an effort either to poison everybody or to just make a lot of money from it. So we see in the smallpox vaccine, I think, a mini-history of our encounter with vaccines in general, both for good and for bad. One of the most interesting parts of the book for me was the mystical side of pandemics. Like I want, and I want to talk about that a little bit because it gets to the question of how the world works in general. So just to step back a little bit, there's like this frankly bizarre and ahistorical popular narrative about the history of modern science, which is that the Renaissance comes along and then the Enlightenment. And during that period, humanity finally throws off the shackles of mysticism and everyone just starts doing science. And every question is the becomes the equivalent of one plus one equals two. Otherwise, it's not worth investigating. And that's how we get modern science. And religion is this kind of like weird thing that happens to stick around because it's uh, because of inertia. Whereas if you actually look at the great, literally almost all of the greatest uh, of the greatest figures in the history of modern science from the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and then and then beyond, you're going to encounter people like Isaac Newton, who's a mystic, Robert Boyle, the father of modern chemistry, who's uh, whom you whom you reference in the book, who also is is just deeply invested in mysticism. Pico della Mirandola, one of the great Renaissance thinkers of all time, is similarly invested. And they're all actually fascinated specifically by Jewish mysticism. That's a topic for another podcast. We've talked about that on this pod a little bit before. So you have this, I think, this sense throughout the Renaissance and the Enlightenment that the entire, not that that science is the only thing worth studying, but actually something quite the opposite, that we should expand our field of of investigation and of study. Actually, the entire world is worth studying, even even things like like witches and magic and mystical phenomena, those things are also worth studying. And maybe those give us insights into how the world around us works. And if you look in the Jewish tradition, you absolutely get this appeal to the mystical, to the metaphysical in response to pandemics. So what does this look like? And, and I suppose my larger question here is, like, is this an important part of responding to disaster that we've somehow lost? Is there something just mysterious about our relationship with the world? Or by the way, maybe maybe we haven't lost this response. Like you can go to you can still go to Fairway in Manhattan today 
Uh, or you can go to Whole Foods in, in, in any part of the country, and you can still see people, like today, triple masking, right? Like, that's magical thinking just without the mysticism, right? <laughs> um, so w- what role does mysticism play both in historical responses to the pandemic, and how does it help us think about human responses to disaster today? I think yeah, it's interesting that you use the word mysticism. That's what I think we might consider it today. I think that the people you just you described, Newton and Boyle, they weren't mystics. They weren't scientists who were also had this profound scientific belief in God. Uh, there was no other explanation for things. And, and so they did things that today might seem weird to us, but it was standard practice at the time. For example, Boyle was a big believer in, in the power of frogs to cure disease and boiled frogs. And I, I discussed this in the book and how this also spilled out into the Jewish community where in Eastern Europe, frogs were a big part of, of the battle against disease and, and pandemics. And they, uh, you know, even up until the 1900s. So I think what you have is a view of the universe in which there is no question that there is a, that there's a divine hand behind everything. And that plagues and pandemics have to be understood in this way. So the earliest explanations that we have, look again, starting with the Bible, it's that God is behind the, the, the 10 plagues. But if we move to the Middle Ages, you know, the idea was that, that there is an, an alignment of the planets that causes uh, disease on Earth. And who is behind that alignment of the planets? Clearly, it's the divine. It's God. In fact, the word influenza that we use today comes from the Latin, excuse me, comes from the Italian word influenza, meaning influence, because the belief was that it was the alignment of Saturn and Jupiter that caused this disease that we, uh, that was described as influenza that we call influenza today. So there was this, I wouldn't call it a mystical approach. I would say there's actually quite rational that everybody believed that it was the disease was caused by, by planets aligning in a certain way. And indeed, you can find that all the way up really until the 1890s, when uh, people were not quite sure what was causing the influenza waves of the day. And one of the, one of the prevailing theories was still that it was something to do with the, with the planets. So there was this, I think, I, I actually see it as a very wholesome sort of, everything is under the same rubric. There's God that is behind this. And then we just have to figure out how we as human beings fit in to this, to this world system. One thing I loved as I as I read your book was just finding and how you identify these kind of pockets of of incredible tenderness, even love in the midst of disaster. And one of the phenomena that you document that I think best encapsulates this is the plague wedding. So where do those start? And I mean, you could argue in some ways they were around there. They were and are still around as recently as like a year ago. What is a plague wedding? Yeah, the plague wedding was really one of the most fascinating uh, parts of my journey into this. Um, I'd actually discovered it, uh, reference to uh, in descriptions of the influenza, great influenza pandemic of 1918. But uh, for our listeners who are not familiar th- with this, this was a response predominantly from Eastern Europe to plagues and pandemics in which a uh, when there was an outbreak of a, of a pandemic or a plague in a city, the religious leadership, the Jewish religious leadership would find usually an orphan, a male and a female orphan, often somebody who might have uh, physical or intellectual disabilities, not somebody who would easily find a spouse, let's put it like that. And this couple would agree to be married and supported by by the Jewish community, and they would agree to be married in a cemetery underneath a black canopy. We actually have photos of these 
of these ceremonies. And this, this came to be called the plague wedding. It used to be called also the black wedding, uh, uh, the cholera wedding. These are all terms for this. And in the book, I discuss the history of these, where we think they came from, and just how widespread they are. In fact, in, the append- in an appendix to the book, I cite almost, I think, some 20 examples from Yiska books, these memorial books about the communities that were destroyed in Eastern Europe uh, in the Holocaust. And, and, and 20 of, at least 20 of them, and I'm sure there are more out there, discuss and describe a, pa- a plague wedding that took place in their neighborhood. And so we have this phenomenon that until the outbreak of COVID had not been seen. And actually, the last recorded plague wedding that, that I could find was in the early 1940s in Zeklovic during the Holocaust. But until then, uh, from that time until today, there had been no other recorded plague wedding until during the outbreak of COVID a couple of years ago, a plague wedding took place in B'nai Baruch, And you can actually see find pictures of that online. I think there was a drone that was flying around taking pictures uh, of this. I mean, it's, it's, it's a striking image of, of this young, quite frightened couple, actually, I think. Uh, there's a handful of people with them, and they're literally standing on and near and around the graves in this cemetery in B'nai Barak as the plague wedding takes place in an effort to end the COVID pandemic. Uh, of course, the question is, how did it work? Well, how is it thought to work? Uh, all this I go into to some degree in the book. And uh, I did not expect to see another plague wedding until, uh, uh, yeah, again, I did not expect right. to see one. I'd been writing and researching this for a long time and had never thought that I would ever <laughs> live to see such a thing. But we did have another one, at least at least one, and there may have been others, uh, recorded in Israel during the COVID pandemic. It was a remarkable ceremony. There, are, It's recorded to have taken place in Jerusalem, in Sfat, we have examples of the plague wedding taking place in New York and in Philadelphia and in <laughs> Winnipeg, Canada during the influenza outbreak of 1917-18. Uh, so it was a very widespread Eastern European uh, custom. I haven't found any examples of it taking place in Sephardi uh, communities, but it was a widespread custom that has been really completely, I think, forgotten uh, about now, and I try and and have us focus on that uh, ceremony and its meaning in a chapter that I that I dedicate to it in the book. As you were researching them, because look, you've been researching this topic since before COVID, as we talked about earlier. So when COVID hit, was there anything, given your research and given your work in this area, and you know, given all the prior work you've done in this area on the flu and so forth, was there anything that that really surprised you, maybe in a positive way, about? religious responses to the COVID pandemic, maybe particularly in the Jewish community or even outside. But was there anything that like surprised you? Oh, my gosh. Um, Ari, I have 500 pages of surprises <laughs> in, in this book. Look, um, I had, as you said, been long interested in, in, in writing some kind of work on Jews and infectious disease or Jews and pandemic. I, I was sort of uh, collecting things for a long time. And and of course, COVID came along, and, and that was really not my inspiration, but was my catalyst in doing this. And when I began the work, I had no hypothesis. I didn't come in saying, I believe X is the case. Let's see if it's true. I just simply let the sources speak for themselves, and any conclusions that I came to you know, came later. Uh, and I was deeply surprised. I mean, <laughs> the, you know, the words almost fail me. I was, I was, I would say, shocked at just how profoundly pandemics have impacted the story of Jews and Judaism. It was a story of which I was completely unaware. And I must say that I'm, you know, I'm a physician and I've had a lifelong familiarity with Jewish sources. So I'm 
I'm somewhat familiar with with, with Jewish writings, uh, although of course no, none of us can be familiar with all the corpus of Jewish writing. But I I thought myself fairly knowledgeable in the area of Jewish Jewish history and Jewish religious history. But I knew nothing, absolutely nothing about this area. And as as I say, it was full of surprises. Whether it was about the Jewish response to pandemics and and the role of of Pitam Hakatoret, the uh, uh, the Mishnah that describes the mating of incense in the in the temple, and how that was transformed, in, indeed, in a mystical way, as into something that was used to protect against plagues and pandemics, and 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 happened again during COVID. I was surprised at the history of the Jewish relationship with early vaccines that we've talked about. I was fascinated by the ways in which Jews were blamed for the Black Death, uh, and also, and I have another chapter on this. I, I was completely surprised when I went into a deep investigation of whether it was true that the Jews died in lesser number during the Black Death. You may have been aware of this, Ari. I, I had certainly been aware that there was a, a legend, a, a myth, a, a, I can't really put a f- uh, my finger on it any more deeply than that, that the Jews died in lesser numbers during the Black Death, and that's why the uh, there was this anti-Semitic pushback against them, because the, the communities saw the Jews were dying in the number, uh, and the theory goes they were dying in lesser number because they kept halakha, washing their hands, and, and so on. And uh, there was a pushback against it. And I looked very deeply into this. Uh, and to my, to my surprise, I found that there was absolutely no evidence to support the claim that the Jews died in lesser number. And that, to me, was a great surprise. Uh, and uh, the history of how that claim came to be so who supported it and, and what happened to it was um, was another great surprise. And, and let me end with a, with a final surprise, which is the use of talisman. And it, to this day, I uh, cite a study that looked at the use of red threads and uh, rabbinical pictures in an Israeli intensive care unit in a modern hospital. And omens and these uh, devices to fight against the plague is actually still very, very common in an Israeli intensive care unit. So... Every chapter, I think, surprised me. And uh, it, it, that's really why I want to share this book with people, because I think and I hope that you'll be as surprised as I was when you read it. So last question. Every year on Passover, we in the Jewish community recall the story of the Exodus. And if you're not Jewish, then as you're reading through the Bible, you're going to be reading through the book of Exodus pretty pretty close to the top of the Bible. So this year, when you recall the story of the 10 plagues. Now you've written this book. How are you going to approach that story and those narratives differently than you would have beforehand? Uh, I love that question. It's a terrific question. And it's one that I've been thinking about and trying to formulate it in my mind. The Passover Seder is a cherished Jewish custom that who knows how, you know, how, how far it, it actually goes back. But it's it's one probably one of our oldest Jewish traditions uh, to gather with family and friends around the table to eat a wonderful meal and to tell the history of how God's love for our people uh, helped bring us out from slavery to freedom is a terrific story. It's a wonderful origin story. I don't want to be that guy that spoils the story, but we do have to remember. And I'm still trying to figure out exactly how I'm going to do this with my family. Because like other families, you know, I, I, I now have uh, grandchildren who are going to be excited to try and stay up. And I'm certainly not going to try and introduce to them the idea that, you know, people really died in this thing. It was 
these these plagues and pandemics were really quite horrible. What right do we have to um, to paint our uh, women's uh, fingernails with the with the ten plague decals, or to have finger puppets or hats with the ten plagues? And I have all this stuff, by the way, in our in our <laughs> Passover bag. So um, we we're we're as guilty as anybody else of trying to make the the Passover seder as joyous and as interesting and as fun as we can. But uh, behind that. Behind that is the story of what what, what happened uh, as described in the book of Exodus uh, and other plagues that happened uh, later in the book of Ex- uh, later in the Bible that I, that I talk about uh, the relationship, for example, between taking a census and plagues that's described both in the Torah and in the the rest of the Bible. So I think I'm still trying to figure that one out. I don't want to spoil everybody's fun, but I and people who who, who read the book will come to understand. There is a much, much darker side of these ten plagues than um, than perhaps we had been uh, led to believe from our Jewish uh, from our Jewish upbringings. I'm not suggesting that my book be read at the Passover Seder, but it might be read as preparation for it. The book published by Oxford University Press, which I have extensively dog-eared and underlined is The 11th Plague, Jews and Pandemics from the Bible to COVID-19. The author is the amazing Dr. Jeremy Brown. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for being with us here. Ari, it's uh, been my absolute pleasure, and thank you for your interest. From ancient times until today, plagues and pandemics have played a transformational role in human history. And given the death and destruction that's always followed in their wake, it's only natural to think of these phenomena as wholly awful. And don't get me wrong, they were and are awful. I mean, as someone who lost multiple family members to the scourge of the most recent pandemic, I don't think we need to, nor should we, sugarcoat plagues. But at the same time, we wouldn't be honest with ourselves if we ignored the bright, incandescent, even astonishing flares of human creativity and spiritual sensitivity that emerge during crises like these. I mean, we'd only be telling half of the story if we left those things out. And if you want to get a sense of that side of human history, I highly encourage you to read Dr. Brown's book. It's a window both into the fearsome power of creation of the natural world, as well as into the unconquerable portion of the human spirit. Anyway, thanks so much for joining us today. This has been an absolute huge amount of fun. And while you're here, please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else you get podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at Soul Shop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.